Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to focus on a few verses this morning, verses 4 and 5 specifically, but we'll read verses 1 through 8. Let's give ourselves a little more of the context. And just to remind you where we've been in this passage before we read it, Jesus is being presented by the author of Hebrews as greater, greater than everything, right? Specifically greater than the angels and Chapters 1 and 2, greater than Moses in chapters 3 and 4. So you had many references to activity that's happened in the covenant community in the Old Testament and being brought forward now to this community, most likely of of Jewish saints, uh, I believe in Rome or somewhere where persecution is taking place, where some level of temptation to depart from Christ uh, is real and active within their community. There's a temptation among them. And so there's warnings, five warnings throughout the, the, this sermon slash letter. And we come now to probably the most prominent of the five. So we're going to take some time here. Um, but the author's been elaborating on Christ's superiority. And so he, he pauses here to warn them, right, to grab their attention. The audience has, has not yet matured beyond milk to solid food. We read that at the end of chapter 5. They're still stuck learning these elementary doctrines of Christ. We read that at the beginning of chapter 6 last week. So we'll read that again and we'll pick up where we left off last time. But before we do so, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that there are occasions like this where we read a a warning, where we read something that is really meant to bring conviction, something that's meant to arrest our hearts, to bring us to our senses, to grab our attention. Lord, to, to just change the course that we're on if we're wandering away from you. And Lord, it's easy to be distracted right now. Our culture's so chaotic. There's so many things vying for our attention, and everything seems to be of preeminent importance. And so, Lord, it's easy to set aside your word, to set aside your will, to be distracted. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, arrest our hearts this morning. Help us to be focused upon your word. Help us to to be changed as we sit under its teaching. Lord, may we be brought to conviction so that we would repent. Let us be stirred up and warmed to the truth of the gospel. Lord, may we ultimately seek to honor and glorify you, the very thing that you've made us for. So, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth this morning. Soften our hearts to respond appropriately to, these, to this particular warning. And that we would heed it, and that we would repent, and that we would walk in gratitude for all that you've done for us. 
It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake, uh, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, in 1981, Reverend Mansfield Caseman of National Capital Presbytery was charged with apostasy because he denied Christ's sinlessness, Christ's bodily resurrection, his vicarious atonement, and his deity. The Permanent Judicial Commission of the General Assembly acquitted Mr. Caseman, allowing him to remain a member in good standing in the PCUSA. Now that decision allowed him to continue to teach his heretical views in their denomination. And that was just one example of many things that were taking place for decades, which is one of the reasons why the PCA formed. This actually occurred you know, almost a decade after the PCA formed, but it was just indicative. It, it, it proved the wisdom of the churches that left the denomination and over concerns about these very things, doc, doctrinal compromise, the fact that apostates were able to preach in the pulpit. See, apostasy is an ongoing concern in every generation. We cannot let down our guard. We have to hold one another accountable, especially ministers. And when they fall outside the, the boundaries of orthodoxy. And so I want to begin with just an overview of the kind of three primary interpretations. There are other interpretations of this passage that we've just read. But I just want to begin with the three primary ones that I think are, are most prevalent, at least in the modern uh, commentaries you'll find today. And the first is that this, this would be a description of genuine Christians who lose their salvation. That's, that's one of the more common interpretations of this passage, that it's genuine Christians who lose their salvation. That was my view prior to being reformed. It's the, it's the view of most who are not reformed, I would say. And simply put, if you accept this interpretation, you will need to consider how you understand many more passages that speak to the perseverance of the saints. Um, yeah, just for instance, one example, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. Matthew referred to that earlier. 
You could look at John 6, John 10, Romans 5, Romans 8, 2 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 1, 1 John 2, and many others. If you want a list of passages, talk to me afterwards. So I find this particular view or interpretation problematic because I think it's inconsistent with the whole counsel of God's word. Secondly, though, there's this view that it's just a hypothetical description, right? It's, it's kind of like it's, it's not genuine. It's not a genuine warning. He's not really concerned about them. Um, it, it's impossible for true believers to fall away, and therefore this, this warning is just like if it were possible, right? And that's what they'll, they would emphasize, that kind of if uh, consideration. They would, they would say this isn't really possible, but nothing in the text indicates this is only hypothetical. The threat of apostasy is treated as a real possibility and a concern for the author. And it's a repeated concern. It's not just here. And we've already seen one, and we'll see three more after this. The third one, and, and I, this is the view that I'll be taking as we work our way through this, not only this week, but next week, is that these apostates were never genuinely converted. And so some would say, well, then we shouldn't call them apostate if they weren't genuinely converted. And they, what I would say is that they, they experienced the blessing of belonging to the covenant community for a time, but they fell away in unbelief. Their lack of perseverance proves the superficial quality of their faith. First John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. I thought it would be manifest that they were not of us, right? It's, it's so they went out from us proving or showing the reality, right, of the, of the superficiality of their faith. And so they never truly possessed what they professed. And now we'll get to, we're not going to focus on verse 9 today, but, but look at that. We didn't read it, but I'll read it now because I think it's important for the context. Though we speak in this way, speaking in all the ways prior to this, verses, really from verses 4 down, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That, I think, is key. Things that belong to salvation. What he's suggesting is that the things that he has just said in verses 4 and 5 in particular... They could belong to salvation, but they might not. It could be an experience someone would have that has, has an exterior look of salvation, but is not, interior, is not an interior reality. Okay, so we're going to say stuff like that throughout this sermon today, and hopefully that'll, that'll make more sense. But I think verse 9 is, is important. Right, we need to keep that in mind because it reveals what the author thinks about his audience that he is hoping and trusting for better things, things concerning salvation, even though he's concerned that there may be some among that community who will depart, proving their apostasy, proving their unbelief. But he does expect them to mature, and this is the whole point of the warning. It's to call them to mature. It's to wake them up out of their slumber, out of what he has called a sluggishness, right? That that they're just not, they're not engaged. They're distracted by many things. 
And we don't know the exact nature of their distractions, but we know that he's concerned for them. He wouldn't be warning them repeatedly if he wasn't. So the climax of the author's warning is that they might fall away from this pinnacle of experiencing external blessings. Previously, he's referred to the possibility that they, they might fall away from the living God. We, we saw that in chapter 3, verse 12. And so the possibility of apostasy is real, but the question is, what are they apostatizing from? What are they falling away from? There is a genuine danger of falling away from the covenant community if our faith is only superficial. There's a a genuine possibility of falling away from the covenant community if our faith is only superficial. And I don't mean that those only of great faith, of significant faith, are accepted by God. No, your faith might be as small as a mustard seed, but if it's genuine, it will lead to growth. It will lead to maturity. And so, the point is, Those who experience true repentance will persevere in their pursuit of God's blessings. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly repentant will persevere. They will continue to grow. They will not fully and finally depart as the apostate does. All right, so we'll see this in three ways. And again, I'm only going to focus on verses 4 and 5 this morning as oftentimes I think I can do more than I, and as I get into the preparation deeper in in the week, I'm not able to to cover the whole passage. So we're looking at verses 4 and 5 and the pretension of apostasy, the pretension of apostasy, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the blanks for next week, but that doesn't mean you don't have to come. I mean, I know some of you, this is like the only reason why you're here, is just to get these blanks filled in. No, I know that's not true, but I'm going to give it to you. The second one is the realization of apostasy. So the pretension of apostasy, verses 4 and 5, the realization of apostasy, verse 6, and then the, an illustration of apostasy, an illustration of apostasy, verses 7 to 8. So we'll look at the second and third point next week. This week, we're just going to see this first one, the pretension of apostasy. Now, pretension comes from the word, root word pretend. So how does apostasy pretend? What do I mean by that? I I don't mean that the experiences described in these verses are are fake, that they're just a facade. But I do mean that they could leave us with a false impression, that if our trust is in these things, if our trust is in these experiences, we could be misled, we could be deceived. Someone could experience each of these privileges and still fall away. So the general consensus among Reformed writers is to understand these five things that are listed here in verses 4 and 5 as privileges a member of the covenant community may enjoy without ever being born again. Again, apostasy here is possible. You can fall away from the covenant community, but that implies that you can belong to the covenant community in a superficial way. You can fall away from the covenant community as you always have been able to under the old covenant. People were circumcised, families were represented in the covenant community, 
and yet they apostatized. Some fell away. We've seen that already, speaking of the wilderness generation. We'll look at that again today, because I think that's exactly what the author is referring to here in these experiences. So in other words, someone can make a profession that appears credible from all outward appearances, but fails to be genuine in reality. So let's look at this first point. The first one is this word enlightened. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now some have argued that this word is a, is a reference to salvation. It's a sign of salvation. Right? It speaks to the genuine quality of their faith based upon a spiritual enlightenment. And we have to admit that that is a possible use of this word in scripture. And it oftentimes does refer to a spiritual enlightenment gifted to us by God. Opening our eyes, doing a work in our hearts. And moreover, they would suggest that this word once, right? Um, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. They would say that once refers to that punctiliar conversion event that every Christian enjoys. They've, they've been enlightened. And, and, and here's what it would imply if that were true. It would imply that those who have once been converted, if they fall away, they can never be restored. They could never be reconciled to the church once they've fallen away. We'll consider something of, of the implications of that later on, but that's one argument. That's the, that's the argument of that first group, right, that you can fall away. But actually, most people in that first group, that first interpretation of this passage, do believe that you can be restored if you repent, which doesn't seem to be consistent with this passage. That if, if, you, re, if you repent and are restored, then it seems to be going against what he's saying here because he just said it's impossible for them to be restored. I think a better interpretation relates to the Israelites in the wilderness, and it's, the, it's along the lines of what he was talking about in chapters 3 and 4, right, where he was evaluating the experience of this community with the experience of those wilderness saints. Right? He was calling them to be different. And so it seems to be a reference to the pillar of fire that God used to enlighten their way. Keep your finger there or put a... a bookmark there and then turn with me to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to look at some, we're going to look at this passage throughout. We're going to go back and forth because this is the illustration that is, that is used in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. So look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 12. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. Now look at verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Right, so the writer's point is that, the, that they have been 
they have received this supernatural gift, this enlightenment of their path to guide them in the wilderness. The, his point is that they've, for this particular community now that he's writing to, that they have learned something about the truth of the gospel. At some time in the recent past, they professed to following the light of the gospel. In the same way that that wilderness generation followed behind that pillar of fire at night. Or kept and guarded by that pillar of fire. So their enlightenment, in fact, might be just as shallow as it was for the wilderness wanderers. Who, even though they, were in, they had their path enlightened, can, continued to grumble and disbelieve. The next thing we see is this phrase, tasted of the heavenly gift. And again, some would suggest that that's a, a full experience of heaven in you. They've tasted of heaven. When Jesus tasted death for everyone, as Hebrews 2.9 says, we don't take that as that he just kind of quasi-died. He just had a little, a little taste of death. You know, he kind of, it was like on the tip of his tongue. He didn't really die. No, that would be heretical. We believe that he died, and, and the author here says that he tasted death for us. So what do we mean by that? If someone tastes heaven, then it would make sense that they actually received the gift of heaven, right? based upon that same language. But just because taste can imply full experience doesn't mean it always implies that. It doesn't mean that in every context it's always the same. And I think the author is making an allusion to manna. Look at, if you're still in Nehemiah 9, look at verse 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So you gave them bread from heaven. You had a taste of this heavenly gift, in other words. They genuinely experienced a taste of a gift that came from heaven, but clearly this was only a partial enjoyment of the full privileges of glory. It was genuine, it was real, they actually were fed and filled by that gift from heaven, but it wasn't salvific. That doesn't mean that their taste was fake, but that it was short-lived. It was like chewing bazooka bubblegum, right? It just, it starts to fade very quickly. And it's not even, not even good anymore. It's like cotton candy or something. It just disappears. It dissolves. So that's what I think he's referring to when he says they tasted this heavenly gift. The next one would be they shared in the Holy Spirit. Now some, again, would emphasize this is a reference to the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. But others would point out that the Spirit has always empowered and enabled people apart from his saving grace. And so what's implied at some level here is that they have received instruction by the Spirit. Again, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold the manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. You did not withhold your spirit to, the, to instruct them. This wilderness generation that died in unbelief, most of them died in unbelief. Nehemiah tells us that the, the Spirit of God was not withheld from them. They were instructed by the Spirit. 
ultimately it's possible to reject that instruction or to not fully embrace it. To hear the gospel, maybe superficially respond to it, maybe even have an emotional reaction to it, maybe even come forward and pray a prayer, and yet to not be truly sincere, not to be truly saved. So they shared in the Holy Spirit, they tasted, the next one is they tasted the goodness of the word of God. In other words, they sat under the proclamation of its teaching. Again, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You received word from God directly. So you tasted of the goodness of the word of God. In this case, it's implied that the readers of Hebrews had heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They heard the words of eternal life. And it probably had an impact upon them to some degree. Made them continue to come and listen for a season. And then the last element here is this powers of the age to come. They tasted of the powers of the age to come. In other words, they'd witnessed miracles just like the wilderness generation. And you can look there at verses 9 through 12 of Nehemiah chapter 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is this day and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire and night to light for them the way in which they should go. They saw miracle after miracle in the wilderness. You read the book of Acts, anyone who was following around the apostles saw miracles. Read the gospels, people saw miracle after miracle in the life of Jesus. And yet what we find is that Jesus warns some If this doesn't arrest your attention, I'm not sure what will. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The miraculous experience was was very typical of conversion in the apostolic age. People witnessed many of the miracles of Jesus without ever becoming genuine disciples. They were there to be entertained. They were there to see a miracle. That's why they they went to see John the Baptist. And to see a spectacle. Now some were truly converted through the experience, while others were were just merely affected because they were kind of adjacent to the work. They saw something taking place. They saw genuine work of God. 
And so they were in the proximity of believers and therefore experienced some level of blessing because of that. And if you grow up in a Christian home and never believe, you're still going to experience some blessings of living in a Christian home, some of the benefits that fall upon you out of God's grace. And so the allusions to the wilderness generation is an illustration of the same danger that is present for members of the covenant community that, that the author of Hebrews is writing to. It's a, I think it's a, a danger that is relevant to every church in every generation. That we could exhibit all the same outward factors but perish in our sin. He's not suggesting that they definitely are apostate. In fact, he hopes the opposite. He's, he's confident of the opposite, as verse 9 says. But the threat is no less real. Listen to what Jude 5 says. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He rescued them out of Egypt. They experienced all the blessings of being associated with the covenant community in the wilderness, and yet they were destroyed for unbelief. That's the same warning that the author of Hebrews is giving us. Same thing that Jude 5 says. So on the one hand, these experiences are common for all believers. We should all recognize something there that we've experienced and enjoyed by belonging to the church. Everyone in the church should relate to them. On the other hand, these experiences could be nothing more than the external reality, right? the, this external presentation that lacks an internal component. Someone can belong to the visible church and experience all of this, but not belong to the invisible church. To belong to the covenant community, but not be a part of the elect, in other words. See, it's possible for an unbeliever to receive the benefits of belonging to the covenant community. They can have a partial sense. In a, in, in a partial sense, according to this passage, they can belong to the covenant community and receive those benefits. Can they learn from the songs? Can they learn from the prayers? Can they learn from the teaching? Can they even be moved by them? Of course. Can an unbeliever receive encouragement from the word of God? Absolutely. Can they walk away with an appreciation of God's word? No doubt. But none of that means that they have enjoyed the saving grace of repentance unto life. It's not a guarantee of that. John Calvin sees all of the experiences mentioned in verses 4 and 5 as, as parallel to the seed that is sown among rocky ground. And think about the, the, that parable that Jesus tells. As the seed is sown among rocky ground, what happens? It sprouts up quickly, but then it's... it's shrivels up because of persecution and tribulation. 
And they immediately receive the word with joy, but they have no root. And their faith is quickly choked out by tribulation and persecution. You can read that in Mark 4, but it's also in the other Gospels as well. In Matthew and Luke. In other words, the, the reprobate can gain a certain amount of knowledge, but they never mature past it because they have no root. It's temporary. It's short-lived. And that, that length of, of time, you know, it might be extended. But in the end, they fall away. You can point to the example of Judas Iscariot. There's very little indication that his experience was radically different from the other disciples as they followed Jesus. Just by the external outward appearance. We're not constantly seeing Judas off in the corner, sulking or, or bitter or rejecting everything that's being taught. No, he's right there. He's, he was collecting food at, at the end of Jesus' miracles, right? He's collecting, he's part of the one bringing back baskets, I'm sure of it. And he's, he witnessed the miracles. He participated in them. He sat under the same teaching. He, he probably had the same emotional reactions. But in the end, he betrayed Jesus. And he's the quintessential apostate who would say, Lord, Lord, did I not do many mighty works in your name? So the author of Hebrews understands that past outward reactions are no guarantee of perseverance. A credible profession of faith must be accompanied by perseverance. Now you can profess to believe but fail to possess saving faith. I can declare that I believe this table will hold me up or this chair or this pew. Right? I can declare that all I want. But until I'm actually sitting in it and resting in it, I haven't shown you that I'm trusting that it can, in fact, do that. And so in the same way, one can profess to believe the gospel, even suggest that they know Jesus is their Lord and Savior, and all the while never actually resting in him, never trusting in him. Declaring to understand salvation is not the same as actually receiving salvation. And the one indication that all of these experiences represent genuine salvation is to persevere in them, is to continue to receive these blessings and to mature in them. And the enemy of that is ingratitude and indifference. Now, those are the attributes of a false convert. They profess a faith that they do not truly possess. And some among the writer's audience have grown lazy, as we said. They've, they've grown sluggish in their faith because their investment is minimal. And so the author reminds them of the parallel experiences of this wilderness generation that they were familiar with. He's challenging them to respond differently. Not to get to the end of their lives and realize that they had wasted it. And so he's written something similar to this already in chapter 3, verses 16, uh, Hebrews three sixteen through 4, 2. And their reaction to this warning will reveal the genuineness of their faith, which the author is confident will prove true. So he's stirring them up by this. He's giving them a genuine warning in order to wake them up out of their slumber. 
Now, once again, the author's point is to push them beyond what could be nothing more than outward and superficial experiences. They might be signs of genuine faith. They don't have to be. And repentance and perseverance are his goals. And so he's not trying to strike fear and doubt into the hearts of sensitive believers. He's not trying to make them all doubt their salvation. But again, it's to, it's to wake up those who may be sleeping, who may have grown indifferent, weary. Right, warning sirens are meant to get everyone's attention. And maybe you've benefited from belonging to the church for a long time, and you've, you enjoy the worship service, you enjoy the fellowship of the saints, even enjoy the morality that, that, it, that, it, um, you know, that it gives to your family and to um, the community. You can appreciate those things. And all of that may be absolutely true of someone who's not in a saving relationship with Jesus. And you can enjoy the company of Jesus without resting in him. So knowing about Jesus is not the same as trusting in his finished work on the cross. Many disciples followed him up until he be, it became inconvenient for them. And they enjoyed the privileges of being in his company without receiving and resting in him alone for their salvation. And so if that describes you, I would urge you to heed this warning right now. Don't, don't wait until tomorrow. Don't delay placing your trust in Jesus any moment longer. I, I want to close, though, with just a, a couple of points here from the, our confession of faith related to this. So, to, in the definition in chapter 17, section 1, and then we're going to jump ahead to 18, chapter 1, or chapter 18, section 1. I just want to read them for you. Of the perseverance of the saints, it says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. That is not inconsistent with what we've just read in Hebrews. If God is doing a work in your heart, he doesn't do it partially. He will complete that work that he began. And we can be sure of that. And we can know that we will persevere to the end. And our assurance of grace is the next chapter, chapter 18. Notice how it begins. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumption of being in the favor of God. And a state of salvation. Hypocrites can, can be deceived that they are in God's favor. And that they're in the estate of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So there's a balance there, recognizing that hypocrites can be within the church, 
The wheat grows among the tares. The sheep and the goats can't be separated perfectly until Christ returns. And so the warning is relevant to the covenant community. And if you hear that warning this morning, I would urge you to heed it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us enough to to give us these warnings and protect us and preserve us. Lord, this is a a means of your grace to us to, to warn us before we rush across a freeway and endanger our our lives warnings are not negative they're they're important to preserve us lord you include this passage for our good and so lord we want to heed this warning we want to repent if we've grown indifferent Or, or or maybe filled with doubts about what you're doing or maybe we've just been ungrateful maybe we've 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 come to church week after week and we receive the benefits and blessings but our hearts are far from you or we have every outward appearance of being like everyone else and yet internally we know we're distant from you. Lord, help us to experience your grace even now that you might bring us to your throne of grace that we could cry out to you for the gift of repentance and for the gift of faith and that we might persevere in that that we might continue to grow and mature, to move beyond milk to solid food, to go beyond the elementary doctrines of Christ. Lord, may you be glorified as you do that work in our hearts. We know that that's not something we can just manufacture, that that's, that's not something we can just make happen. It's not a certain formula or s- steps that we can follow. But we know that if you bring us to the place of recognizing our sin, recognizing our complacency and our indifference, that that you can also bring us to a place of mourning over that indifference and even hating it. Hating that we're so distracted by this world that it becomes so great that we fear man more than we fear you. And so, Lord, help us to respond in obedience to this passage. Help us to respond even as we sing to you. Help us to be filled with gratitude. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, may it all be for your glory and for our good, for the preservation of the saints. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Come Thou Fount, hymn number 429.